Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. This week, we're re-releasing a special episode that we did with Jim Wallace, the founder of Sojourners. Uh, we did the episode back on April 30th, 2020, and it was on poverty, racism, as pre-existing conditions to COVID-19. And Jim is back with us for just a few minutes this morning because so much has changed. We talked, Jim, uh, 25 days before uh, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, we also have a new president now and an ambitious legislative agenda. And you, I think after 50 years, uh, have said um, farewell to sojourners, at least in terms of your day-to-day operational role. And you're going to be at Georgetown School of Public Policy, uh, filling a chair in faith and justice, which sounds just absolutely perfect for you. So a lot of change. And I just wanted to do a, a quick catch up. But first of all, tell me how you're doing. <laughs> I'm doing great. So, Jim, departure from Sojourners after, is it 50 years? Is it really 50 years? Yeah. A few years ago, I just thought to myself, you know, after a 50-year celebration, I don't want to go back to my desk in the morning. So Adam Taylor, who's one of our wonderful young leaders, uh, if he was ready to be the successor and the board, love that. And I love that. And I wasn't going to retire from the movement or my work, but certainly from that president's role so a new generation could take over. But then Georgetown made this wonderful, generous offer. And uh, faith and justice are have been the love of my life and the two words that fit my vocation. So this is a chair at the McCourt School of Policy on Faith and Justice and a center. And they brought me in as professor of the practice, and I get to keep practicing, which is great. So the chair, Georgetown Center for Faith and Justice, is beginning up in the fall and is this new uh, inaugural chair. So I'm really happy. It's going to be a great uh, venue, a great perch, a great forum for all the work that I want to keep doing. Advocacy is going to be the core of what I do still. So I'm very excited about Georgetown. Well, it sounds like the absolutely perfect marriage and uh, a place where you're going to obviously be able to make, uh, continue to make enormous contributions. And you you, you make the transition sound uh, easy. And I've just got to ask, is it uh, is a little bit harder than it sounds? I mean, it's it's a momentous transition, not just for you, but for the organization and in some ways, honestly, for the movement. Well, transitions are always uh, uh, a big deal. Uh, part of my legacy, if you will, was I wanted this organization to continue beyond me, which it has, and now a whole new generation of leaders is there. And I'm really very excited about them and that. And I'll be as supportive as I can be, but they're going to lead this going forward. And I get a whole new place and venue and perch to to convene people, bring people to, together, teaching, mentoring. I love that. And writing and speaking. We'll be doing, particularly, we're moving into one of the most critical times in American history in terms of whether, in fact, we're going to commit ourselves to a multiracial democracy or not. And so there's a lot of energy uh, to try to prevent changing demography from changing our democracy. That's the simplest way to put it. So I'm going to be in the middle of, of trying to make sure we make this transition to a multiracial democracy in Georgetown 
is a perfect place for that. And and, it, and this is the reason I wanted to kind of just catch up with you quickly as we re-release the episode that we had recorded back in April of 2020. It was uh, some 25 days before the murder of George Floyd. Um, we have a new president now. The world has changed dramatically. And I just wanted to uh, get a sense of whether you're um, optimistic. I think you're somebody who's always been optimistic. You have to be to do this kind of work, but um, the world has changed in such profound ways. And um, I, in, in my view, I guess it's moving in the right direction, but there's still a lot of hurdles to get to the, to the kind of the society of racial justice that we envision. Uh, how do you see it? Well, speaking of hurdles, let's stay on your word there. There are 386 laws just passed or being passed in 48 states to restrict voting rights. They're strategically, surgically aimed at voters of color. Uh, all over the country, this is happening now. And then with gerrymandering and with uh, immigration policy and with clear uh just unapologetic voter suppression now being embraced by a whole party. The Republican Party is embracing this. The, the big lie of the election being stolen has been talked about a lot. I would say underneath that big lie is the bigger lie of white supremacy. And that is fueling all this energy. And so really, this is a, a moment in time where we have to decide what kind of nation we're going to be in every... The silver lining for me in COVID is these two boys, my two boys, 18, 21, living here with Joy and I, and dinner every night and talking about all of this. We were watching during COVID. We were more than we normally watch because we were, you know, watching our screens and there was George Floyd. And it was a horrible, dramatic video, but we'd seen videos before. But this one, because we were watching got our attention and sparked this deepening movement that's more multiracial now than ever, particularly among young people like my kids. And they're going to expect nothing less than a multiracial democracy. But the forces that are afraid of that, that want to prevent that, are galvanizing. They're organizing. And they're organizing across the country. And so this is a moment where we have to decide. You mentioned optimism and hope. Desmond Tutu, one of my mentors taught me the difference between the two. Uh, optimism is how things look, how things feel, uh, the changes. Hope is a decision, a decision, a choice you make. For me, it's a de decision based on what we, this thing that, that we call faith. Uh, Hebrew says, uh, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And my best paraphrase of that text is hope is believing in spite of the evidence, and then watching the evidence change. So I'm going to hang on to that hope. When Georgia passes a law that says state legislatures can overturn local election results, when Texas says judges can overturn the results in counties, which counties do you think in Texas they want to overturn? So that that does not seed optimism that they're trying to do to prevent voters of color from voting. That's what this is all about. There was no fraud in the last election. Even William Barr has now come out and said that was BS, he said. Well, that election wasn't stolen. They're trying now to steal the next two elections. That's their plan. And we got to prevent that from happening. And so I'm going to hang on to that hope 
despite the evidence day by day, and believe that a new generation represented by my kids uh, are going to have a, a multiracial democracy, which is what they want. But we have tremendous, as you say, hurdles and obstacles and battles to fight for these next two elections. And that, to, to me, is a, is a fight worthy of our faith. So let's just talk for a minute about what, what uh, that fight translates into to prevent uh, that from happening, the, the local laws, Georgia, Texas, others. Uh, what kind of things do we need to do to make sure that the, the, the kind of what I think of as an accelerated social justice movement that we've been living uh, with for a year now, what do we have to do to make sure it doesn't dissipate? Is, uh, is, it, is it fundraising? Is it organizing? Is it voter registration? Is it advocacy? I'm sure it's some combination of all those. But, you know, for somebody who's thinking about, like, how do I be part of this movement? What, do, what can I bring to it? What do you recommend? Well, pay close attention to the new voter restriction laws in all of your states. There will be battles. There are battles going on to try to prevent those laws from passing or to limit their damage. That would will be and should be done. However, most of those laws are going to be passed by our state legislatures, which are skewed, which are not designed to fairly represent those states. Uh, James Carville once said of Pennsylvania, he said, there's Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and the rest is Alabama, Jimmy <laughs> said. And so uh, how how do we fight those laws, but, but you know, we're not going to win a lot of those battles because of the way the state legislatures are skewed to white rural voters. That's just the way it is. In Washington, we have a big battle coming up around voting rights. For the People Act has, has, has not passed. It's not even come up to for a vote. The Republicans prevented even a debate from occurring. Now the John Lewis bill comes up. We need to, we need, we, we need to have federal protection against like we did in the old days, as you recall. Uh, we need to overturn these voting rights laws in these states. Now that should happen. Uh, I think that must happen morally, but it might not. It might be that the Republicans in the Senate and the House are, are, are going to use their filibuster to stop that from ha ha happening. So there's a battle ahead for, for a vet. There's litigation to try to overturn the, these laws. But I want to propose a strategy that doesn't depend on winning any of those battles at the local and national level, which is very specifically, concretely, the things you were saying. Number one, massive voter registration. Number two, we need to have a, a massive ID, voter ID campaign. You must present ID to vote. Most Americans believe that, that all those who are registered and want to vote have the IDs they need when they vote. Third, voter turnout like never before. And, you know, I, I think, Billy, that the reason that Raphael Warnock and also won in Georgia was in, in part because of the voter suppression. It motivated people. It gave them anger and, and they got out to, to vote. We can out-organize <laughs> out-mobilize many of these restrictive laws. They, they, they don't want to give voters uh, water and uh, food in, in, in line. But we can out-organize, out-mobilize that. One thing we can't out-organize and mobilize 
is a state legislature or a judge overturning the results of local elections. So we're going to do voter protection like we've never done before. We, we train 2,700 clergy, and there are priests and pastors and rabbis, and this time imams have joined too. Uh, and we're going to have, we're going to have uh, lawyers and callers in the polls together to protect. And then voter pr- protection is finally on that day of election or those days of election, how to protect from suppression or intimidation. So massive registration, uh, massive ID campaign, voter turnout like never before and then voter protection on election day or on the election days. So that's a grassroots strategy that we can all be part of wherever we are. And we'll fight the battles in the state houses and in the House and Senate in Washington. And we may win some of those battles, but even if we don't, we have to out-organize and mobilize these forces that really, I mean, let's be blunt, they are pressing for continued white minority rule. That's what they're doing. It's not just a political issue. For me, it's a faith issue. It's a faith issue. It's the image of God, Imago Dei, in every one of us. First chapter of the Bible. Let us make them in our own image, in our own likeness, God says. So this is about Imago Dei. If you have the image of God in you, you should be able to vote and not be denied because of the color of your skin. That's not just a political partisan issue. That's not a Democrat, Republican. People say it's an American issue. It is that, but it's a faith issue, and that's how I'm going to express it. Well, you laid out a prescription that we need to uh, share far and wide. And as as, as we wrap up this update, uh, Jim, as I listen to your words, which are always just so compelling and so uh, inspirational, where do we now uh, continue to find your writing? I just read a terrific piece that you wrote called We Can't Rebuild the U.S. Until We Support Families. Uh, I'm sure you're going to continue to write and have blog posts. Will they be on the Sojourners site? Will they be on the Georgetown site? I want to make sure that our listeners can continue to follow you. The new uh, Faith and Justice site at Georgetown will be up and running soon, and I will continue to post religious news, news service, and maybe Sojo.net too. We're just making a transition now. And I'm saying farewell to 50 years, but not farewell to this cause and this movement. Well, uh, I'm glad you're there. And it feels to me like uh, after 50 years, you should get a little bit more of a breather than you're going to get. But you sound awfully busy, busy doing, uh, obviously, some of the most important work that uh, our nation can confront. So thanks for thanks for taking the time to do this. And I do hope that you get a a little bit of time just to catch your breath, because uh, 50 years is something to be. honored. It's really, it's quite an achievement. And uh, I know you're going to make a mark at Georgetown as well. Thanks so much for just being such an, a leader on the most important issues of our time. Well, Billy, I'm I'm on this call last time and this time with you because of the tremendous admiration I have for you and your work. Affection is along with the admiration there. And, and this is, we got to continue the work that you and I and so many of our colleagues have, have, have done. And the time for that the urgency of that work is going to be in this, these next few years. Well, and I've been taking good notes, Jim, because I'm not at 50 years yet. I'm only at 35, but uh, doing transitions right um, is important. And uh, I hope to learn from you and keep watching what you're doing. So thanks again for being with us. Let's keep being partners, my friend. Please enjoy this next episode, this re-release of our special episode with Jim Wallace. We are so grateful to our partner, William Sonoma, Inc., for the incredible support they've provided to No Kid Hungry over the years. This month, 
The Williams-Sonoma Inc. family of brands is launching their annual Tools for Change campaign. It includes a variety of products that can be purchased in support of No Kid Hungry. Without partners like Williams-Sonoma, who have been with us every step of the way, the work that we do would not be possible. So thank you, Williams-Sonoma Inc., for your steadfast support. We're so excited to see the success of this year's campaign. And be sure to check out the amazing products benefiting No Kid Hungry at www.williams-sonoma.com slash nokidhungry. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time, Jim. And um, I always learn from you. So let's dive in. So, Billy, uh, how's your spirit? Uh, well, that's that's the right question. You go right to the heart of the matter, Jim, as always. Um, and I think, you know, my spirit, uh, probably like everybody else's, has been on a bit of a roller coaster. Um, in, in many cases, it's strengthened by seeing the incredible generosity of people that manifest itself in so many different kinds of acts, some financial, some just, you know, commitment on the, on the front lines. Um, but then I have nights where I, you know, watch the evening news and I wonder if I'm going to be able to fall asleep that night, um, just given how much concern there is, um, for people we don't know and people we do. So I, honestly, I'd say it, um, it, it goes up and down and my sense is that's been the case with a lot of folks. How about you? How, how's your spirit? Yeah, that's, um, that's always, uh, the first question that we I need to ask of myself every day, not just the work and how we're doing and um, my my long to do list. Um, I I think that I've been shifting from this notion of social distancing. I've been saying for every day is can't lead to social isolation. That's for sure. But more and more, I'm not wanting even to say social distancing. I'm wanting to say physical distancing because we just can't have the social isolation. And so how do we stand apart but really live and act in solidarity? Uh, and that's, I think, the role of the faith community. So every day I'm with my two boys here and my wife, and I'm trying to figure out how can we get closer together even while we're physically apart and so hmm. I think that's um, that's sort of um, every day I'm looking at, I, like all of us, I have my little pad next to me of personal, my personal prayer vigil pad and people who are close, family and others who have got the virus. And, and my, I have my, my sister and her husband and three of their kids have it in Detroit. And so my text keeps pinging all day long my family's pinging her right. so in the middle of my work that's all bit, so we all have that in a way we're working and we got this pinging from people close to us so it's very personal and yet it's so big the numbers like like you Billy are staggering to me <laughs> everything is staggering uh, the death tolls and all the rest it's just it's staggering so how do we respond to something so big and staggering, but it's going to be very personal for everybody that we know. And I'm assuming that you're uh, also just kind of given your role and responsibilities as a leader uh, are also trying to, in some ways, model this behavior you've just described for your, your larger team. Yeah. And we're also, we're also convening now a weekly conference call for about a hundred faith leaders who, when this began, I, asked if he wanted to call and they did in two days notice and um, now they want to do it every week. And so hmm. we're having how to take faith virtual, you might say, 
how do we um, do that? How do we figure out as uh, church leaders and pastors and communicators how to stand apart? Well, I mean, our role is to get close to people, particularly vulnerable people like you and I. That's our everyday conversation in our heads. And we're going to have here is how do we not let vulnerable people be left out? And, you know, they say this this virus doesn't discriminate. Well, medically, that's true. But for vulnerable people, it does, because the more vulnerable you are, uh, less access to you and I are in safe houses this morning with our, our families and we have, you know, food and income and people don't have that. It, you know, they're going to contract the disease. So, so I'm trying to figure out, um, and my team at Sojourners is trying to figure out how do we be close to the vulnerable, um, in a time when they're going to be marginalized. And that's what you do all the time. So I guess on that, what are, remember you and I had a conversation when it was just starting and the schools were closing and we were worried about kids yep. losing breakfast and lunch. And I remember the phone, we were saying, how can we mobilize churches and the whole nation? And, and we didn't expect the schools to come through. And, and all of a sudden they did, they're going to, or they're going to try, they're trying in all kinds of ways. Uh, to feed kids. And so we're in the middle of those conversations too. I'm sure you're more in the middle of those conversations about how those kids uh, don't get completely left behind. And so what are the vulnerable? What's their, their, um, a pre-existing condition? Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, that... it's poverty and racism. Those are pre-existing conditions that make that help you get the disease. Well, that, that's a, that's a really good way to put it. And, you know, I keep, thinking and seeing more evidence of um, the idea that uh, so much about this COVID crisis uh, is similar to the work that we've been doing for a long time, uh, and especially one aspect of it, I guess, which is that, um, that at least in terms of feeding people during this crisis, uh, that aspect of it uh, in itself is a, it, at least is a solvable problem. Um, you know, we've, the, the news has been dominated by stories of terrible shortages of, you know, masks and ventilators and hospital beds and all the rest. Um, but we have no shortage of food. Uh, what we do have and what we've always had, um, and this has really been the work of Share Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, at least for the last 10 years, is we have a lot of barriers, some political, some bureaucratic, um, some relating to um, indifference and neglect, but a lot of barriers between children and families and the healthy food that they need. And it's always been our job to, you know, knock down those barriers. Now we're doing it in different ways. We used to do it by figuring out what are the barriers to kids who are eligible for getting school meals, um, actually getting them. Um, sometimes it wasn't logistically convenient. Sometimes there was the stigma attached to it. Now there's a different set of barriers uh, and we're not just dealing with uh, a percentage of kids who should have been getting school meals, uh, but weren't. we're dealing with all kids who are getting school meals. So 50 million uh, American public school students, a very high percentage of them, were getting free or reduced price meals and depending on them. And now the barriers are not in the school there uh, by virtue of the fact that we've had to move the feeding programs to the school parking lot or to the YMCA mm -hmm. or... Right. To other places but you know ultimately uh one thing i guess that gives me some encouragement is again at least this narrow 
piece of the crisis uh, is uh, is solvable, but it exists for the same reason you were just describing. Uh, and I, I love the way you use the term pre-existing conditions. So the pre-existing conditions of inequality and lack of opportunity and poverty and all of these things which are tied to each other uh, are the reasons that we're seeing so many kids and families struggling. And uh, hopefully, I, I, I think we're all wondering uh, in what ways when we get to the other side of this, are we different? Do we just go back to doing things the way we used to do them? Um, if we're able to uh, take faith virtual, as you just said, will that continue after this or will we go back to kind of the conventional ways? Um, are we going to think about people and families who've been struggling to eat during this crisis uh, and then just go back to the way it was before? I think that's a, a big question. And I think, I guess one of our Hopefully one of our responsibilities or charges um, from a leadership point of view is to help people see how we can make some permanent changes. So uh, the next time there's such a crisis, the, the vulnerable are not as vulnerable. We're, we're more on an equal footing. When you think about that, that's a that's very, very close to my heart, too. Is that there's a text I've been thinking about, Ephesians uh, 5, 16, it says, redeem the time for the days are evil redeem the time uh-huh. the days are evil so this is these are evil days in many ways and i think we were living in some evil days before this virus hit but it's now we're our time is different it's you and i are we're we're sheltering and with our families and so many people are are doing that or, or they're on the front lines uh, uh, friends of mine uh, close people are on the front lines a lot of low-income people who aren't even residents and doctors they're in the front lines too but but how do we take this moment this virus is revealing so much of what was true before um how how so many people you said well are were hungry before in this country the richest country in the world and so it's revealing what is wrong that we've either not recognized or, or we've accepted it and how can we redeem this time to look at not just immediate response to people, which you're doing every day, to feed people, but also how this will change us, how we act, how we lead, what we do now uh, will change us going forward. History is being changed by this. So how will those changes result in our being different going forward? And food, uh, you know better than I, food is, it reveals so much, you know, how, why people are hungry. There is enough food. There is enough. Why are we people hungry? And what are you seeing? kids especially what you see how can how when you say things would change permanently in terms of food what what would that mean do you think well um i I wish i knew i hope it means that there's a uh that you know the the consciousness that's been elevated now remains there so we we've you know we've been doing this work for a long time and we've always had a good base of support but uh suddenly we've heard from people um uh, you know i'll give you an example um we've had 35,000 uh, individual small donations in the last uh, 18 days, uh, which for us is unprecedented. We, you know, typically get 30 or 40 individual donations a day, and we're seeing, you know, sometimes as many as 1,500 or 
or or 2,000. 92% of them, Jim, are new first-time donors. Uh, and they're all saying the same thing is we've, we've got to make sure that, uh, that, that we feed the kids who are being impacted by this. Um, so anybody who's, and in the early days of this crisis, there was a lot of attention to the fact that schools were closing and kids who depended on school meals weren't going to be able to get them as they used to. So, so some 30,000 people for the first time have said, I've got to act on this fact that kids are hungry. The, the same kids were, you know, dealing with the same issues before this crisis, but it didn't have people's attention the same way. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping there's a broader base of support and a higher level of, of consciousness that makes this work, um, you know, less the, uh, the exception and, and more the rule. How's the how's the the faith community? I know it's, I'm sure it's impossible to generalize, but how's the faith community? Where where are they putting their focus? Um, are you able to crystallize that? Well, um, as you know, we've got the phone with these calls. We've got Catholic charities and lots of people, who, even the people who do the the kind of rescue mission soup kitchens. Uh, they're on the line. Uh, certainly for black churches, Hispanic churches, Asian American churches, white churches, we're all looking at who's vulnerable among us. And that's because that's our job. Uh, and yet that's becoming more clear to us. It's revealing what our job always is. <laughs> and I, I think that's really becoming a very powerful thing. And we're also, we're on the phone uh, last night <clears throat> with the same people, Catholic, evangelical, mainland Protestant, black Hispanic uh, churches about what we're saying to Congress. And one of the places they haven't acted enough is in the area of food. You know, SNAP, this supplemental nutrition program has got to be increased. It's got to be strengthened. Um, and then we do that at our local communities and it brings people together. I was struck with all the early millennial elder people talk. It was millennials who got their phones together in New York and figured out as I, as they only can, how to find elderly people who want what they needed food wise and to deliver the food to them. <laughs> so food feeding uh, is one of the first things that faith people do. Um, and that whole notion of sharing food and, and sharing the table, the table is this week is uh, this will come out after that, but Holy week is this week. And, and, you know, we had a last supper at a table, with Jesus sitting with his disciples and somehow the table and who's at the table and who's not and who's being taken care of and who's not. These are, these are deeply religious issues for us and how to find those people uh, in our communities, but then also how to advocate and press government to put the needs of those people, the least of these whom Jesus talked about, the least of these are the least important in Washington. <laughs> And so how do we, our job is to make the least of these uh, the most important. And what's your confidence level that that will change now? You know, we've always had this fault line in our, in our public policy conversations about big government versus small government. Everybody seems to realize that, you know, we need big government to, to jump in and help in this case. Do you, do you think that will extend to the most vulnerable to the, to the least of these? I think it's the only thing that could bring us to, together. If it's a philosophical argument, big government, small, you know, as you and I both know, that's not the issue. The issue is effective government. It's working with the nonprofit world and the private sector, but government, what's clear is government in a time like this 
uh, is only is the only place big enough to respond. So how do we get away from our philosophical differences and focus on uh, the most vulnerable, not just during this time, but after this time? And we've seen during this time how and where people are most vulnerable or gaping holes in what's called the safety net. And if we don't fill those holes afterwards, we've learned nothing from this. So it was good on the call the other day. We had a, an evangelical leader say, we need politicians uh, from both parties and both sides of the aisle uh, to prioritize poor people. <laughs> and I said, amen, we, would you close in prayer for us? <laughs> you know? and, uh, and my hope is that this can bring us together. That text for me, that Matthew 25 text was my conversion text. Um, Jesus says, I was hungry. It was me. It's called the, it was me text. Huh. I, I was hungry and you gave me food or you didn't. And that's what it comes down to. Uh, he's saying it was me. I was the one who lost those school lunches. I, that was me. And I couldn't find the parking lot where they had them. Uh, that was me. So if you say you love me, pay attention to them. Or we're talking about how people are perceiving the role of government in a different way. Um, how are you experienced people finding faith in a different way in a time of fear like this? Do people um, come to the faith in a different way than they had before? You know, we don't know that yet. Uh, it's a great question, though. Um, what I'm finding is that uh, people who are churched and people who are unchurched, uh, both are looking for inspiration and sustenance. Um, how to get through this. And so it's not a time for worrying about doctrine or proselytizing. It's a time for finding how to, how to, you know, late at night when we're all, when our work is done. And for me, it was very late last night. You're trying to go to sleep and you're thinking about, you know, your family and those close to you and what you've got to do tomorrow. And, um, and uh, I think people are looking for that kind of sustenance. So, you know, again, uh, after the, this is over, it'll be partly how faith communities responded. Um, did we respond in a self-serving way to make sure our charities got funded or something? Or did we really make the solidarity? How do we keep the physical distancing again and again from uh, social isolation? That's our role, I think, uh, for in that nonprofit world that you and I both live, that's our role and to force government to be accountable, but we never just depend on the best they, they can do. So I think how the faith leads or doesn't lead during a time like this will probably answer your question. Hmm. What people think about faith afterwards. What else should our government be doing now? We've been focused probably more narrowly at our end on an issue that you raised, which is snap the, formerly the food stamp program, we think it's the most systemic and most important way to ensure that uh, families will have the resources and can spend them with dignity and respect to make the best choices for their families. Um, that's only one piece. We've also been doing a lot to kind of knock down some of these barriers that I talked about. It used to be that uh, only uh, a child could uh, access a school meal. And we've changed that so that parents can actually go pick up the meals at the sites. It used to be, you could only pick 
pick up one meal and we've changed that so that you can pick up three or five or 10 so you don't have to go out every day. Um, so lots of regulations and restrictions have been waived, but we've been focused probably more narrowly in, in that food and hunger space. Are there other things that we should being, be paying attention to in terms of the advocacy work to get government to make the right decisions um, going forward? Well, I'm saying snap, 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 snap at the top. Okay. We, are, we are too. I'm glad to hear you say that. We are. Because as you know, well, uh, you know, feeding people uh, is people need food and, and feeding people is, is, it's not everything, but if we're not feeding people, they're going to die. <laughs> and, and uh, snap, the other thing about snap, it's so effective and it not only feeds people, but it stimulates the economy. That money is spent right away. You know, when people who need food are, as I say, food insecure, which means hungry, when people get those SNAP benefits, which often run out in the third week of the month, you know, as you know, when they get that food right money right now, they spend it. So SNAP is maybe the most effective way to serve people's immediate needs and revitalize the economy at the same time. And so we're calling in this, hopefully, this new bill that we'll see hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, when this com- comes out, I hope we're past it. But, you know, I want to see a 15% increase in SNAP at least. And we're calling for that across our spectrum in the faith community. But SNAP is very concrete. It's effective. It works well. Uh, it, and and it, it will not only help the people who are hungry, it'll really help revitalize the economy because the money spent. So, but I remember, you know, our last call, we talked about the schools and, uh, and one of my former kids on staff is now, a uh, he's now the, uh, head of the school board in his, his city. And he called me and said, you know, we're, we're feeding kids. We had to feed kids, but boy, this was not the business we signed up for as teachers and all that. And so, so, and then we realize they can't come to the schools. So we go out in buses, you know, and, um, and so we've got food in the bus and then the, all these kids come up and of course you're supposed to be a student to get the food. That's the rules. But you know, we're not going to ask for student IDs, right? I mean, kids hungry and need, need food or, or, or moms are coming out just like, I like you were saying, moms are coming out. We're not supposed to give food to moms, but we, we are. And then mom says, I get two more kids at home. And so we give her more food for the kids at home. So it's like all the rules get, get, get broken because you've got the immediate need out there. So, so that, those kind of stories, like he, he said, so what do I do? I said, well, first of all, I'm, I'm encouraged by your story because you're doing the right thing. When you go out into the, he said, I, I have never seen vulnerability like this in my community. This is Minnesota. I've never seen how vulnerable people are in my own community. I've seen nothing like this since I worked in refugee camps in, in the Middle East. This is a kid who has been in Middle East refugee camps, and he's seeing that now in Minnesota. And so, again, food reveals so many things. And and like you're saying, he, what do you do? It's You're going to give food to the kid who doesn't have a student ID. Yep, you are. And and the mom, yep, you are. And the kid, she says she has, which she has at home. So I think uh, this can change us. If we just respond to immediate needs, uh, that's not enough. This has to change us. And, and when so many people are giving to your work for the first time, that's an indication that, that this could change us. I hope it does.
Well, Jim, I'll share a really interesting story right along these lines, um, almost like the mirror image um, opposite in a way uh, of what you were talking about. But uh, it had to do with a conversation I had last week with a uh, kind of a corporate exec uh, who oversees a kind of a holding company of lots of small businesses. And he was saying to me that the Small Business Administration and his view had gone from being the slowest agency in the country to, you know, one of the fastest. And he said they did it by, you know, uh, getting rid of all their regulations, all their rules. He said, we know there's going to be some fraud. We know there's going to be some abuse. That's okay. We need to act with speed. The greater good is to, you know, get these funds out there. Now, I haven't usually heard business leaders say the same thing about the SNAP program. Uh, and, you know, and we, we all know that over the last 15 years, uh, we have wrung out, you know, 99.9% .9 of any fraud or abuse that ever existed there. That's right. But this notion that, um, yeah, um, you know, that's human nature, that's going to exist in every sector. It's now okay in the business sector, at least according to some of the folks that I've talked to, um, because, you know, they understand the need to help the majority of folks who are going to benefit. Um, I hope people bring that same empathy and um, larger worldview to, to the social sector because, you know, we deal with programs that aren't perfect, but we know that um, in 99% of the cases, they they have their intended impact. And we tend to get hung up on some mm -hmm. ses sensational stories about one or 2% of the cases, but um, I'm hoping it creates a larger worldview for a lot of folks. Moving fast. I like that. Moving fast. Because when we had this meeting on the phone with all these faith leaders, Catholic bishops and Salvation Army and National Association of Evangelicals, National Council of Churches, very diverse politically and theologically. And we decided to act on SNAP in the middle of the Senate debate on the first, first bill. And like business, churches don't move fast and church organizations and denominations don't move fast. But we had a statement in the hands of the senators the next day. <laughs> we never moved that fast in the faith community, but we did. I had senators emailing me back saying, thank you, thank you. I, this, this brings the moral authority of the churches to this debate about SNAP. So when churches can move fast on SNAP, on feeding people, <laughs> that's a sign of, of change. You know, are there some examples, Jim, I'm just wondering for folks who are listening, are there uh, either senators or policymakers or elected officials who you feel are um, particularly responsive to, uh, as you were just describing at the moral authority of, of, of the faith community, um, who does it resonate with? Whose leadership would in government would be inspiring to you and to the larger faith community? Well, there is right now, to be honest, there is more um, openness or resonance with these concerns of ours in the churches among some of the Democrats, but there's also a list of Republicans who, who care about these things too. And, um, and so we're going to be reaching out again this week and we'll be speaking to the speaker, uh, Nancy Pelosi. We'll be speaking to uh, Schumer, the uh, leader, their leader in the Senate, but also there's a whole list of Republicans that we're going to be also reaching out to. Because this is one of the issues that has to bring us together. So sometimes up there, I talk to people who are in like the prayer breakfast movement, and they often say, let's leave politics outside the door and let's just pray and talk about our personal faith. Um, and I understand that leaving partisan politics outside the door, 
but that Matthew 25 text that Jesus instructs us to care for the least of these, you can't leave them outside the door. So they've got to be in the room. Um, and so the more we, we can get past the, the partisan and the polarization that has, I was talking to a, to a, someone who leads a huge organization that serves people in this country yesterday. And he said to me, um, our polarization has atrophied our compassion and our common good muscle. Our polarization has atrophied our compassion and common good muscle. Brian Gallagher, that was actually, I'll, I'll name him because that was a wonderful thing. United Way, he runs. Yeah. And, and what he's wondering is if whether, whether this moment could, could bring that muscle back, could, could that, that common good muscle. I love that phrase that Brian said. So how do we, how do we use this moment to do that? And will the complete polarization up on the Hill, um, uh, will that be changed at all by this? Um, so, um, but it takes lead, lead, leadership uh, all up and down, uh, mayors that I'm talking to and governors, uh, a lot of them are showing tremendous leadership right now probably much more than well certainly much more than we see at the white house in particular i want to say but local leaders have to serve people they have to get jobs done fix problems and so a lot of the leadership that we need i think is really more at that state and local level well i'm gonna play this podcast before i go to bed because you're leaving me uh, much more hopeful and less fearful about the future um and i really you're helping me see some real good that could come out of this so thank you well you know when we were uh, worried about the kids um <laughs> we're all about these kids gonna lose school lunches a talk with, with you was one of the first talks i had and i knew that i was talking to the right place because that was it how we respond to this is going to be a sign of where we're going so i'm very grateful for you and for your work and and uh your uh you're responding to some to the practical moment of feeding people, which I think is is uh, becomes really uh, sort of an archetype, if you will, of how we're going to going to respond. So we're, I think, uh, we we should keep talking. This is good because when we, we talked about this feeding thing with kids right at the beginning, we weren't sure what would happen, and uh, I thought, well, uh, got to talk about talk to Billy Shore about this, and so we talked, and I'm glad we're still talking. Uh, I am too. Uh, thanks for your work and for your words, Jim. They give a lot of us um, inspiration and and hope and help us connect to faith sometimes in ways we didn't even realize that we were capable of. So thank you. Billy, I'm so glad to speak with you today and so grateful for you and all the work that goes on. So bless you, my brother. Thanks so much for joining us on Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. I hope you'll go back and look at our archive uh, of uh, episodes at adpassionandstir.com. You can rate us, rank us, subscribe, and share with friends on behalf of the whole team at Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign. Thanks for listening. <music>